We're here to make a dent in the universe or else why are we even doing this? If I don't think I cut out all the fun stuff, because that to me is the fun stuff. Build that audience, because if you've got no one to sell it to, then it's just going to flop and die. And no one likes a floppy, right? I'm yet to meet a woman who just kind of grew up confidently in her body. Welcome to my podcast. I'm Nicole Bremner. Join my weekly conversations with really interesting people as I delve into the stories and experiences that make them uniquely them. Welcome back to my podcast. Thank you so much for joining me. I I know I say this a lot, but today I'm extra excited to be interviewing Helen Garlick. She's someone that I've been following on for quite some time. She's a family lawyer and mediator working in London, Oxford and Guildford for over 35 years. And she actually stepped back from practice to write her her memoir, No Place to Lie, which I've read over the last uh, few days. And it's about healing from a corrosive family secret. And it's hailed as exceptional and compelling and a must read. And I must say that it really is. And it really touched me, this book. And I haven't read the end because I didn't want to give you a spoiler <laughs> during this interview. So you'll just have to take it from me that it's exciting so far. She's formerly the author of six editions of The Witch Guide to Divorce. And she's appeared on TV, radio and podcasts. And she's worked with thousands of clients to achieve amicable outcomes on separation and divorce. Helen's also trained thousands of lawyers in constructive talking solutions, focusing on the family's best interests. And I can tell you from experience that is so, so important in, in divorce. Helen spearheaded collaborative practice training for resolution, first performed family law until 2020 and ran bespoke dispute resolution courses. She's now focusing on heartfelt communication, allowing ourselves to be vulnerable and tell our stories to reconnect with one another. Brought up in Yorkshire, Helen spent all of her holidays as a child in the village of Marham Church, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, North Cornwall, where her parents had a holiday cottage, the Salt Box, and that appears quite a lot in the book. She now lives in Sussex on the South Downs with her husband, Tim, and is the mum of three and I love this, a stepmom of two bonus daughters. And she's sober, which we can touch on if we've got time. And really, really excitingly for Helen, I'm sure, is she is walking from Land's End to John O'Groats in 2023, fundraising for charities dedicated to suicide prevention and well-being, with Tim and their Cocker Spaniels, Pippin and Ziggy Stardust. I love your cocker spaniels, Helen. They're just lovely. Oh, thank you. <laughs> thank you so much for being with us today, Helen. Yeah, well, Ziggy Stardust is the son of Pippin. So he was her sixth puppy. Um, we had a litter of six surviving puppies and um, I, I didn't mean to keep him, but he's just so super cute. <laughs> You know, he's he's just, he, he opened his eyes first of all the puppies and he looked into my eyes and he, the puppies used to sleep on this pile together, you know, and he would often be on top and he'd just look at me until he fell asleep. And then as soon as he woke up, he'd try and find me and look at me again. So I couldn't let him go. So anyway, so he's now, I haven't actually yet told him that he's going to be walking about 1100 miles the year after <laughs> but I think he'll be all right. <laughs> I'm sure he will. Well, a little bit of uh, breaking news here is we've got a cock spaniel puppy coming uh, in next month in April. So I'm really excited. Oh. We're, 
We've been sent daily videos of this little puppy that can now walk and go upstairs. Her name's Hazel and she's a little golden or liver coloured, actually, I think, liver coloured. So very excited. Oh, oh, that's really exciting. Yeah, they are. They're very, yeah, they're very different. They're sort of almost a kind of human side to Spaniels, I think. They're, they're very connected to humans and they kind of, they look at you and go, what do you want to do now? What would you like to do now? So. Um, yeah, I'll, well, I wish you all the best with that, Nicole. Thank lucky you. puppy to be joining your family. <laughs> yeah, joining along with our Saluki, which uh, she's a bit more cat than dog. So uh, yeah, we'll have a, a lovely dog family to join all the all the children. Yeah, great, great. Uh, Helen, I did, as I said, I've spent the last couple of days reading your book, No Place to Lie. Which when did it come out? Um, it came out in uh, last month, so February, beginning of February. Um, twenty, yeah, twenty twenty one. I mean, I, 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 I'm thankful for lockdown actually that um, that I ended up writing it because I, you know, I don't suffer from write, writer's block, but I do kind of slightly suffer from writer's <laughs> avoidance. Um, and um, I'd been promising myself for forty years that I would write this book, but you know, I got it done in the in lockdown one. Um, and uh, yeah, so it was out last month, and I've been just so. I've been so thrilled. You know, I, I didn't know how anybody would react to it. And I was quite nervous about it. You know, it's a bit like a sending out a baby into the world. Will anybody like my baby? Or will they not like it? Or, you know, will it worse? Will they ignore it? But I've had amazing feedback. I've had letters and cards and texts. And it seems to be something that um, almost open thing, opens things up for other people. Because um, I have been pretty uh vulnerable I suppose and, and you know shared some of my stories about when things were, were tough and I think that is a way where we find our way through to one another where we where we allow ourselves to be vulnerable rather than pretending that we're we're fine and it's all right when you know sometimes some, just sometimes it isn't well that's what you say in this book you say that um I won't pretend that stuff covered in this book is easy reading. If you choose to turn away, you wouldn't be the first. People have crossed the road to avoid speaking to me in the past, and I can't blame them. If you're carrying on reading, you might like to figure out why this stuff did happen. And it is it is harrowing reading, and you do go into quite a lot of detail. How did, how did your family react to the idea of this book and then the publication of the book? Well, I, I actually had to wait until um, after both of my parents had died, Nicole. So um, so this goes back to a story in, in 1981 when my brother died and um, what, you know, how he died. And my my father maintained that it was an accident and I knew it wasn't. So I, I wanted to write about it and I wanted to kind of get agency over that story and tell things from David's perspective. Um, so, yeah, I... I it would have been too cruel, actually, I think, to have written it while they were alive. But then when I started writing it, I had Tim's support. So my second husband is, um, I mean, lucky me, he he was an editor. Um, I've worked at the Times for 26 years. So, you know, he, he was quite a useful person to have around when I was writing a book. Um, but I just had to delve down and find, you know, find my truth. I think I've been walking around it for quite a long time, but you know, walk, walked in there and, and found it. And then how did my family react? Well, I, um, my, only one of my children has actually read it. Um, what's interesting now is that my children's friends are reading it and contacting me. So eventually I think the other two will read it too. Um, but, I, but they've, 
they had quite a different experience of my parents um, from mm. how I experienced things. So that my parents were brilliant grandparents with them and, and adored being grandparents. And so they, um, you know, they they want to keep that memory and treasure that memory as we all do. Um, but and my two bonus daughters have been incredibly supportive and and uh, enthusiastic. I mean, I think everybody's a little bit surprised about how, uh, you know, about how how deep the feedback is, about how, how, how it does seem to sort of, you know, people have said it's changed my life um, reading this book. So, and you know, it depends which place you're in when you're reading it. But I, they, they, it's just been Mother's Day and my, you know, I got cards from my kids and they said, we're so proud of you, mum. So I think, I think that's been okay. <laughs> yeah, and that's the point. It's not that they're not proud of you. It's just this book's very exposing and it's very confronting and perhaps too confronting for them. Um, maybe, yeah, maybe. I mean, it's it's interesting because the, the media have picked up on the story much more about my mum, uh, the secret that my mum took to her grave, as I talk about it in the book. And the media have picked up on that, whereas they haven't picked up on the issue of suicide so much. So um, I don't... Uh, and but they, you know, my kids think it's really cool about what happened with with their grandmother, so that they, I don't think they find that bit confrontational. I just think it's, you know, I mean, I'm in a phase in my life now where, apart from my younger daughter who comes back to us in between the university terms, um, you know, all the other children have have got their own homes, they're financially independent. So this is really a time to kind of strike out. I think for me, um, strike out into new territory and I think they're sort of going oh it's just, just a bit different from how how mum was but they yeah they are they are behind me I mean I did I've got it my cousin who's a classic car dealer I sent him the manuscript before I sent it to the publisher and he's very much you know he's a real Yorkshireman if you think Jeffrey Boycott and my cousin you know there's not that many different I mean, they're very, very similar. They're cut from the same sort of cloth, apart from the fact my my cousin doesn't play cricket. Um, but he called me to say, right, well, Helen, um, I've read your book, and uh, I think it's quite good. But whatever you do, you've got to cut out that bit about Kashmir Man. So Kashmir Man comes out in the, in, in the first few chapters, and it was a sort of episode where I took comfort from a stranger really and I so I, I think he thought it would be very exposing for me to fess up to that <laughs> but you know that's what we do as adults isn't it we kind of we don't behave well when we're going through trauma so I thought it was better to tell them tell yeah <laughs> I love that and I do wonder how your children took Cashmere Man <laughs> when they read it and went whoa mom <laughs> we've not mom. done that respect <laughs> I don't know but you know it's one of those things isn't it I mean you, you hate to think about your parents having sex with each other never mind anybody else and so uh, <laughs> it's probably quite confrontational for them yeah but if they didn't it wasn't a virgin birth I have to say you know spoiler alert kids um, <laughs> no I like that it was an, an an uplifting bit in what is a very serious book what also was very very eloquently done is the unpicking and articulating of what is often a really complex relationship with your parents especially with your mother and that of your mother and her mother and and her mother-in-law and you've 
ensured that you've explained that very well. And I'm, I haven't got to the bit with the secret yet. So I kind of skipped over that because I don't want to know that just yet. But how difficult was it for you to really articulate your relationship with your mother and, and, and how her relationship was with her mother? That's a very good question, Nicole. I mean, I, I think, you know, it's interesting, isn't it? When I was in my 20s, I went into therapy for a while after my brother died. And um, my therapist kept saying to me, you know, would you like to talk a bit more about your mother and your relationship with her and your relationship with your women friends? And I said, no, 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 there's absolutely no need to go there. We are fine. You know, um, there's nothing wrong with my relationship with my mother. And it wasn't really until my 50s that I was able to explore that. And my therapist um, suggested that she thought that my mother might be narcissistic. And it wasn't a term that I'd ever really thought of in relation to women. I'd, I'd had this very blinkered view that, you know, if that narcissists were men broadly. And I hadn't come across the notion of narcissistic mothers Um and it's I mean it's a it's a it's a generalization I'm using it as a lens to kind of look through to examine what my mother was like and, and why she was like the, the way she was um, and I think that what happened with my mum was that she was born to very very clever woman my grandmother mm. went to um, the Sorbonne in in Paris in 1919 so just after the first world war and she did a degree in French at Sheffield so you know, that was pretty groundbreaking in those days. Um, and my grandmother had promised my mother that she would be the only one. So my mother kind of took that, you know, very much to heart and thought she would only be the only one. So when her sister came along seven years later, it devastated her. And she she said, even, you know, even up to the day she 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 died, it was it was really hurtful to her that her mother had broken that promise. She never forgave her really for it um and I think she was sort of put out in the cold whereas my aunt was the favorite the kind of you know chubby happy go lucky um fun kid that was around my mum wasn't really like that she was sort of a bit of an ice queen beauty so it wasn't an easy relationship coming back to your question Nicole <laughs> um it wasn't an easy relationship with my mother um and she was very she just was different I mean, that's what she wrote in her envelope, but she was different. You know, she could make people trip over just mm. by looking at them. And she once offered to teach me how not to blush because she said it comes in very useful, you know, so that people can't read you. Um, so she was an ice queen um, and she was pretty deep. It was pretty hard to know what was going on with her. But I think I was. As the elder one, I was the one who was the responsible one, the one who needed to look after not only me, but my brother. And actually, I had an incredibly brilliant training as a mediator from my parents because, you know, they, there was often arguments simmering between them and other things. So I was the one who learned how to read silences and, you know, look at the way people's eyebrows were shifting and be able to interpret that. That makes me sound a bit mystical or something, but you know, I, I did, I did manage to tread my way through, through uh, not easy waters, and so that, that really helped me. Um, and I think, and I was very close to my grandmother when I was, 
when I was younger. So that's funny how that pattern has repeated itself in terms of my kids being close to their grandmother. Um, but I found my grandmother absolutely amazing. It was only really when I was writing the book and I was realising, you know, hold on, here's a woman who every morning at 10.30 opens a bottle of Anjou Rosé and then will drink it during the day, mm. every day. Um, do you think actually maybe she had a few flaws too and maybe that's not good, such a good idea for me to be tucking into the wine either so as a result of writing the book I went sober mm -hmm. when think, was yeah. that right at the very beginning of the of the process um so in early 2020 yeah I I went so I went sober um on the 18th of January last year 2020 and then I had a couple of days when I have had a glass or two of wine so I think my you know my formal date of being absolutely sober that I can date back to was the 3rd of October last year but you know that I think those were just two days and I actually as somebody once said to me it's what is it's important what's happening today you know today I'm sober and that's important mm. and it's important for me to be to feel like I'm present I think when I used to drink I didn't drink massively but it would just sort of take me take me to a different place I wasn't always present I was more involved with, with, with you know the sensations in my own body so I think you know for me it's been a terrific thing to do and I've seen my family through clearer eyes I think as a result of being sober. Yeah it's quite a brave thing to go sober because so much of our social life is is tied up in alcohol and that buzz or relaxation that we get that not quite being present is just such a draw to that but I guess with your father and with his issues as well with alcohol especially later in life it was something that you felt was now was the right time to do that yeah I think so um and I you know I just it just wasn't I mean people say you know either you have alcohol or it has you and yeah mm -hmm. I I never, I never really enjoyed the first glass of wine because I was always wondering about when the second one would turn up. So, you know, I, I think it, I just, just didn't feel right any longer to, to be doing it. Um, and also, interestingly, the, uh, the guy who is my brother's best friend, who I had a relationship with, um, uh, he, I spoke to him just at the tail end of two thousand and nineteen, and he's a Devonian sheep farmer and I was always worried for him because he he was quite a drinker that I you know if I ever did speak to him again he'd be drunk in a ditch somewhere but very far from it he had given up drinking 15 years ago uh, when he met his second wife and he's decided that he went sober and I you know when you have people like that and you think actually that I must have been pretty tough for him to do it but he did it um that's that's pretty that's that's encouraging and then also yeah. I, I just seem to have more people around me these days who or not physically but you know virtually at least at the moment who who don't drink and then are talking about the joys of drinking and then that's 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 helpful you know you get you end up with a sober tribe and mm -hmm. they and it's it's easier that way I mean I, I don't know what it's gonna be like after lockdown actually I don't because um, I've been sober just during lockdown really <coughs> so so much that that road to try to walk down no, that's right. It's interesting. I was just talking to my Ocado delivery driver the other night and he said that he has never, ever delivered so much Prosecco in all his years of working for Ocado. And then my uh, stepdaughter-in-law, she works uh, between university uh, 
filling orders at Tesco. And she said the amount of alcohol that's going into these baskets is phenomenal. And it must be as a result of lockdown and people just numbing and self-medicating, I guess. It is, it is a socially acceptable drug. Well, it is 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 socially approved, isn't it? As well, in in a way. I mean, I've I've certainly been at parties where I chose not to drink on that occasion, and then people have said, you know, oh, why aren't you drinking? And then once you started reading up about the effect of alcohol on your body, you know, my temptation is to kind of go back and go, well, why are you? You know, what's because it, it's it is such a poison. But I mean, I'm, I don't know. I um, yeah. I mean, I think we're all people are finding different ways through lockdown aren't they and some people are kind of numbing and going back to the going back to their their comfort zones of choice and other people have got incredibly fit um i mean i i had my vaccination a couple of weeks ago in midhurst in sussex and we're tremendously lucky there because the earl of grantham hugh bonneville so from downton abbey welcomes you when as you're coming in he's he's a he's a he's a local and he volunteers and bless him he you know he comes out with this line of well we we were expecting you you know sort of beautifully as if as if I was the first person that he'd ever he'd ever said that to but he's very slim these days he's obviously used lockdown to to get super fit and and uh and well so you know <laughs> people are using it in different ways aren't they yeah, that's right. You studied uh, what thirty-five years ago, also as a as a solicitor. And uh, what's interesting is a comment that your father made that really spurred you on to to follow in his footsteps and study law. Do you want to talk about the comment that he made? Thanks, Nicole. I mean, yeah, it was um, it was one time he was he was on the phone to a friend of his and. I could hear a friend asking, you know, how was David? And my father saying, oh, you know, well, he's doing quite well at cricket at the moment, and um, he doesn't seem to be studying as much as he should be. And but you know, he'll be he'll be joining the family firm because my father had a, a firm of solicitors up in Doncaster and Sheffield called GC Garlic and Co. It'll be called GC Garlic and Son one day, he'd say. Um, but my brother wasn't like that at all. You know, my brother was never going to be a lawyer. He loved fishing and going out and looking at stars and building motorbikes and doing experiments. He just was not lawyer material. Um, and that's not to criticise him in any way. You know, he he just he just was more of an engineering type person. Um, but he, so on this telephone call, then the friend must have asked, and how's Helen? And uh, he talked about me and he said oh well, you know she seems to be doing quite well at school and she's she's studying well but um you know it doesn't really matter what she what she wants you know it doesn't really matter what she's going to do because she's a girl and she's so she's going to get married and so it doesn't really matter what she does in life and I went hold on <laughs> I'm not taking that you know I you know I could be a I could be a solicitor too I could be a lawyer too um, so yeah, I, I thought that it would be a good idea to be a lawyer. And my mum had said to me years before, when I think I was about three, "What what do you want to be when you grow up?" And I said, "I want to be a writer." I feel a bit. I feel this story is a bit kind of like mad, isn't it? I mean, what three year old says they want to be a writer? But anyway, this is the family story. And my mother said, "No, no, no, darling, you can't be a writer." you have to be a solicitor like daddy because the writers don't make any money so you know duly <laughs> programmed that's what I 
that's what I did with my with my life. I've I've been a lawyer and now I am a writer and I love saying that. I love saying I'm a writer. I'm an author. <laughs> That's right. And yeah, it's, it is such a feeling, isn't it, to have that published book and just to be able to say, now, mum, not only did I become the solicitor, <laughs> I'm yeah. also a writer. And uh, yeah, it, it is such a, a wonderful thing that you have achieved. And it's interesting that your father had that attitude. Was it his, it was his, it, it was his wife's mother who had gone to university. Is that that's right? right. Yeah, yeah, that's so right. His, yeah. So no, his mother had left school at fifteen, um, as indeed my my mother did. But um, you know, there went my my father was the first one to go to university in his family, and then he um, he was head boy at his school, and he got a classics scholarship to Cambridge. He was very very bright. And so he read Latin and Greek and then and then became a lawyer. And um, yeah, so that's that's what he wanted to do with his life. But I but I, I mean, I suppose, you know, my mum was a housewife in the 50s. She was born in 1931. So she was born sort of smack bang in the middle of that generation that they call the silent generation, the ones who came in in the western world between the the greatest generation um and the baby boomers and actually it's quite a small generation because so many people died in the in the first world war and then the flu that came after it that there weren't so many babies born and those that were born were born, brought up to be very were brought up very traditionally really you know they'd have heard things like children should be seen and not heard and if you can't say anything nice don't say anything at all and let's draw a veil over that so they were brought up in a like a culture of silence you know and it was a good thing to keep quiet and be stoical and work hard um and you believe in authority and you know that that kind of thing so my parents weren't quite like that because they're actually quite liberal and they set up a film society in Doncaster and they had lots of different friends um you know they and we like Germaine Greer's the female eunuch was around and talked about in our house so we talk about politics and and different ideas but we didn't talk about feelings so in Yorkshire in those days when I was brought up you know feelings did not exist you couldn't talk about them and depression did not exist so I was never asked as a child how do you feel about something you know I would I'd be asked thousands of times what would you like to drink but never how do you feel so I think you know when I was as I got older I just had to learn about emotions a bit like a bit like um, painting by numbers you know mm -hmm. finding an emotion and and learning what that emotion meant and you know trying to label things that were going on and even nowadays Nicole I have this list of emotions on my laptop just so that I you know realize the whole variety of different emotions that there are out there um, and I add to it from time to time if I come across a new one um, because you know once once you've got those labels what the different emotions are then when the feeling comes up and you can label it Again, it gives you a lens to understand what's going on in your body as opposed to that sort of what I think I felt for a long time in my life, kind of like just a kind of grey, mushy, misty thing going on inside me that I couldn't even describe. So I think it's 
words are really important um talking about what's what's going on inside us yeah that language to to describe these these emotions and these feelings is the first step isn't it and you your parents really did to me epitomize this uh the whole british stiff upper lip and uh, the almost quintessential British uh, person and how they're viewed abroad. And uh, I I can relate to that because my great grandfather was British and he moved over from Bristol probably in the, uh, I don't know, he's on one of the one pound fares to Australia. Mm-hmm. And so my family are all very much like that. It's you do not talk about feelings, you talk about events, you can talk about people even, but you don't talk about feelings, but they just do not exist. They're things that you keep to yourself. And it does create this almost, oh, I, for me, I feel like there's this overwhelming requirement that we have to share our feelings. So my children shock people because it's all about how they're feeling. <laughs> they're almost the opposite end of the scale. Do you feel that? this has changed the way that you have raised your own children so that they are very articulate about the way that they can express their feelings? Um, I hope that they're much more open. Yeah, I think I think they are. They're oodles more open than, than I am. And they also, you know, bring me up to scratch about if I'm getting, if I'm just being, I don't know, like I said to my younger daughter the other day, I'm seeing... Um, David, my gay black lawyer friend, and she said, why did you have to say he's black? Why do you have to say he's gay, mum? You know, I, I thought, yeah, actually, you know, fair, fair dues. I, I didn't have to say that at all. So they, they'll they call me out on stuff. But I, I don't know how, I don't, you know, I've learned this stuff a bit late in life, actually. I've learned, because I was very much brought up, Nicole, with this, I don't know if this it resonates with you and with with your listeners, but and you know, I was brought up that the structure of a family was the most important thing. So that you'd have two parents, a mum and a dad, um, you know, very heteronormative, and then and then the children, and you should be married before you before you have your children, and you know, it was the structure that was the most important thing. Whereas nowadays I've just realized that that's a load of tosh. I mean, the most important thing that you have with your children is your relationship with them and you know the the ebb and flow of that and and showing your absolute joy and delight in your child you know because that's what we all want actually in in any relationship isn't it that people adore us or you know have that we have that joy and and so that you know the depth and the richness of it is is what is what it's about it's not the structure and actually, there are all sorts of different families now that, you know, you and I have both got melded families. And that brings a huge richness in 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 our children's lives, our lives as well. And yet it's also, you know, quite a thing to navigate between because I don't think we've even now got the language for it. I mean, I often call, you know, my my uh, stepdaughters my bonus daughters and then you know my younger one said to the other day oh can't I just call you a parent it's probably easier <laughs> you know and she often addresses me and Tim as the rents you know so we're just finding different ways of of labeling it and of course I suppose if we just use first names that's much easier anyway but yeah we're in a different 
time now, um, aren't we? There's just so much more out there in terms of social media. Um, I think people do talk about certain things in some ways, but every every change, every development brings different pressures. I was watching the um, documentary about Caroline Flack last night and her life and death and the immense pressure of social media on her and how she was hooked into it and yet hated it and, you know, couldn't free herself from it. And the the poisonous trolling that went on in that, which was utterly shocking. I had no idea how, how bad it was. So... Yeah, a vicious circle, yeah. Oh. Isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And I guess that's, uh, I want to come on to the suicide as well, because it's obviously the the whole point of the, of the book. But um, just going back to the, the various types of families and the language used and the, I guess, the, the, the names that are used within a family now, our language is not, uh, has not adapted to the type of families that are now in society. And our joint contact, James Carroll, who's a, a family lawyer at, um, at Russell Cook, he's just recently published a really good article on this about how he found that there, were, there wasn't the right language, there wasn't the right terms. And being a partner of a law firm, he would say my partner and people would assume that it was the partner of the law firm, not his life partner. And that even my stepmother has such connotations that doesn't uh, marry up with the the parenting that you do to, the, to the, your bonus children. So I think that you're absolutely right. And I think that's an important point to make is that we almost do need new words and new language, the same as we have with gender, to describe the various relationships within the new family structures that are now in our society and also accepted in our society. I don't know how that will ever happen, but it does need something, it needs yeah, rethinking. I, I think it needs it needs talking about. Yeah, I read that article actually by James Carroll. I was reading oh, it. Did you? Ago. Yeah, there was there were quite a few in the in a in a uh, legal magazine called called Review, um, and a number from the LGBTQ um, community and and the, the language that they were using and sort of they were using old fashioned in a different language. To just yeah to, to kind of define relationships and the way in which people were relating to one another but yeah it's 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 so it's true isn't it I and I was so nervous about being a stepmother you know it doesn't get a good press does it I mean apart from Maria von Trapp <laughs> you've got a pretty pretty grim lot of uh, stereotypes there in the in the in the fairy stories but I, I've I've really loved it and I think I mean one of the things I, I suppose one of the things I love about it is that there's no kind of past history and you know all the problems that there might have been through the teenage years but you kind of have these wonderful fully formed young adults who are fantastic and have welcomed me into that into their lives and have, um, into the into the big fam as we call it um, so yeah it's I suppose it's just seeing what's actually going on as opposed to all the all the horror stories about about what's going on and and having fun and and being present and you know hopefully we're going to get some opportunities to to do all that sharing of family life again i mean i i michael as i've seen you going on your gorgeous yacht with your gorgeous boyfriend and your gorgeous children <laughs> so looks amazing i mean it looks absolutely fantastic i'm so glad that you've you've 
you've given your children that opportunity, you've given you that opportunity in Paul, because, I mean, what an amazing thing for children to kind of draw on in, in future about that freedom and just setting sail off to new lands. It's gorgeous, gorgeous, gorgeous. Yeah. As you will, well, as you will know very well, it's not all plain sailing. Yeah. <laughs> there are a lot of challenges with incorporating two families, but yeah. the benefits far outweigh those, those challenges. Yeah. <laughs> I wanted to also ask you about your parents' marriage and you you talk about your parents' marriage and then you even uh, talk about your father's parents' marriage and how it was all about keeping up appearances. Mm -hmm. How much has that shaped your career choice in moving into the family law side and, and resolution? Um, oh, great question. I mean, I think when I when I was an article clerk, um, which is like the old-fashioned term because I... Um, you know, I am that old. Um, back in the 70s in the city of London, I'd, I'd gone to a, quite a corporate firm, Drusus Natley, although it had a it had a, a strong family tradition. Um, it had acted for a number of, you know, families for, for many, many years. And in fact, in the vaults, and this was amazing for us article clerks, there was a, there was a, there was a box there which, which was called Julius Caesar because it was the estate of Julius Caesar that we were dealing with. Not that one, but another Julius Caesar. Um, so, but it, it was pretty corporate and I was dealing as a kind of very small cog in a, in a large wheel with another very small cog in a large wheel. And I was, you know, I, would, I did do certain things. I drafted tenancies and licenses to assign and and I did wills and I did things like that, but I, I wasn't really meeting real people. So when I was thinking about what it was I wanted to do, I thought I want to go into family law. Um, so I went to see some of the top family lawyers around at the time. Um, I remember there was one called Blanche Lucas, who was the most wonderful exotic character. Character who somebody really ought to write a book about one day. She was a, she was known she was a white Russian and she'd been married five times impossibly beautiful you know even in her in her 70s and she used to smoke sobrani cigarettes those different pastel colored ones in a long um cigarette holder and so she would kind of like go like this and go darling you really need to examine why you want to be a family lawyer because most of us are very fucked up <laughs> we really need to have a look at that so you know i i kind of got i mean maybe i was trying to uh, well, that does not need to be bleeped out later on, Nicole. If I, it's I, fine. I, sorry, sorry, <laughs> we're sorry. all adults. <laughs> Trigger warning. Um, uh, so, yeah, I mean, I, I it, it felt that it was about real people and it and conflict and and shattered dreams and romance and you know that desire to make things better. And I mean, I, I think there's everything in family law. Mm. Um, it's a it's a wonderfully rich area to to work in it's very tough too I think and um, only perhaps more recently have family lawyers recognised that there is this thing called emotional contagion and when you're dealing with very difficult cases all day then that does seep into you and you need to get your boundaries very clear so that yeah. you know you you don't let that negative energy come come or you process it when it when it comes through um, so I think you know, it was funny because my, my mum used to say or would occasionally say, well, your father doesn't do divorce. 
which made me think that maybe she did want a divorce, but my father didn't agree or whatever. So I, it felt like it would, you know, I sometimes wondered what would have happened if they'd have got divorced. Mm. It was, they were, I, I never really saw them as being tremendously happy or loving or close with one another. They didn't touch one another very much. Um, so there wasn't that sort of sense of joy in their relationship. And I, but I still, you know, held on to the dream that it is possible to do that. And I think actually family always believe that as well, that because, you know, nowadays, if a, if a relationship isn't working and is indeed toxic or difficult for you, then that is not the right environment to be bringing children up in. You know, it's, it is better to strike out and, and find a better way and find a place where you know children can be more peaceful they've got a secure and settled background and they can they can get on with their job which is just to grow up and you know be kids yeah <laughs> yeah I, I yeah it's so important for them to have that security and that that stability and there's there's that lovely saying that there's the family you're born with the family you're given and the family you choose and uh, sometimes the family you're, you're given, whether that be a step parent or step siblings, they can just be as close and as important as as the family that you're born to. Mm-hmm. And just to turn finally now uh, towards probably the most difficult subject, which is is the suicide. And it was there's this kind of bittersweet irony, I guess, that your your brother was discovered on uh, St. David's Day and his name is David back in 1981. And what do you think has changed, if anything, about the attitudes towards suicide and uh, suicide in general moving forward from 1981? Oh, well, um, I think potentially it's talked about more um, nowadays. I mean, I think I'm just actually teaming up with an organisation who are wonderful. So please check them out, people. They're called um, Zero Suicide Alliance. And they have this big, bold, ambitious, beautiful dream that, you know, of reducing the numbers of suicide down to zero, which is an amazing goal. And I think, you know, one has to ask oneself, is suicide preventable? And the answer must be yes, of course it is. It's just that we've somehow kind of created, possibly unconsciously, a society in which there are all sorts of things which lead people to believe that they don't want to be on the planet any longer. There's, you know, there's toxic masculinity. I think that's been talked about a huge amount. And it's it's horrendous and hurting and you know appalling to women, but it's also appalling to men. Who are in that straitjacket of being mocked and ridiculed if they don't behave according, you know, according to certain pack rules? Uh, I mean, I have two daughters. I also have a son, and he was training to be a carpenter last year, and he just had to step away from the from the company he was with because of their racist and misogynistic day in day out attitudes. You know, the, the language was horrendous. Um, we've, you know, there, there are a lot of there's a lot of things that that really are bad now, are bad, and social isolation being the worst of all. And I hardly dare say that in the middle of this lockdown. But as human beings, we are DNA wired for 
connection with other people. You know, we we yearn for that because actually we know that that is what makes us thrive and makes us live longer. And, and when people are isolated, they die younger anyway. They get more illness. They may drink more. They may exercise less. You know, they don't look after themselves as well as people who are well connected. So I think with, with Zero Suicide Alliance are doing lots of work in all sorts of different areas to see how you minimize the chances of, of suicide. You talk to people, you you reach out and connect. They've got a series of three different short trainings that you can go, um, if you go onto their website, it, it's all for free. And they've now trained um, over 1.6 million people. So I think, you know, that's, that's great. There's more information out there. Um, we need to kind of connect more. And actually, you know, I think the government's also waking up to the true cost of suicide. You know, when things can be, you can get a number on something, then that is another way of looking at it. And mm. the studies show that each suicide costs the other country 1.67 million pounds, which sounds a phenomenal amount. But then you think, you know, well, that person who isn't working, isn't contributing, the devastating effect it has on their family, they may not be able to work. Um, I mean, I'm looking at it through a kind of financial lens at the moment, never mind the immense, horrendous emotional impact. Mm. So I think we're kind of waking up to how we can change things um, and being willing to talk about it. I mean, the trouble is, it's interesting with the book, you know, the media have been willing to talk about my mother's side of things, less so about suicide. Um, Although I think when, you know, when Meghan Markle talked about how she had been thinking about it and then she hadn't been allowed to to seek help, you know, that helps actually open up the conversation about the importance of us mm. taking care of ourselves and, yeah. and you know, self-care, which is where it always needs to start. It always needs to start with ourselves and we look after ourselves as, as well as we possibly can because that's the most important love relationship of all, really. Yes, exactly. I think that's such a beautiful place to end that, Helen, is that it really does come down to uh, that beautiful love relationship with ourselves and the fact that this is potentially, uh, yeah, potentially something that can be eradicated if people have access to the, the right support during that time. Helen, thank you so much for your time. I would recommend reading No Place to Lie. It has been a wonderful book. I'm looking forward to now finishing it tonight so that I don't spoil it for anyone on, accidentally uh, on this on this podcast. But thank you very much. And, thank you so much. Uh, and do keep in touch because I'd love to put up details of your fundraising walk in 2023 as well. So thank you very much, Helen. Thank you so much, Nicole. Great pleasure to be here. Goodbye. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please support us with a like, comment, subscribe and share. And you can always join the conversation live across my YouTube, Facebook and LinkedIn pages at 1pm every Thursday. See you there soon.